and welcome to the first episode of Bent Notes, a queer musicology podcast. I'm George Haggett, and I'm one of the committee members of the LGBTQ music study group. The reason we've started this podcast is to create a platform for musicians, composers, scholars, and pretty much anyone to talk about the queer things that they do. Every two months, we're going to release a new episode with a different guest telling us about their work and how it intersects with queer issues. This episode's guest is Dr. Brian Inglis. Brian is a composer, musicologist and critic. He's also a former member of the electro-indie band Hicks Milligan Prophecy, who supported The Fall and Alabama 3. His music has been released on Atomic Duster Records, Non-Classical and Sargasso. His musicological interests centre around the issues of genre and identity, and include publications for Routledge, Peter Lang and Cambridge Scholars. I first met Brian at our annual symposium in Southampton last spring. He was talking about a new book that he's edited with Barry Smith, Kaikosri Sarabdi's Letters to Philip Heseltine, and I was fascinated. It's basically an edited collection of documents that chart the remarkable friendship between these two composers as it played out between 1913 and 1922. Kaikosri Sarabdi was an Anglo-Parsi composer, pianist and critic. At this stage in his life, he was coming to terms with his sexuality and his racial identity, as well as exploring his musical aesthetic. You might know Philip Heseltine by his pen name, Peter Warlock. Sarabji wrote him just under 40,000 words worth of letters over these nine years. Starting as a musical confidant, he quickly became something more. In one of the letters we quote, Heseltine refers to Sarabji as a blackamoor. We didn't really have space to unpack the racism of that term, so for further discussion I just thought I'd recommend an article by Ella Shohart. It's called The Spectre of the Blackamoor, Figuring Africa and the Orient, and it was published in The Comparatist in 2018. So without further ado, here's what happened when I met with Brian in his London flat to find out more about the testimony of this gay composer as he came of age. started when Srebji was 21 in October 1913 and Heseltine had written an article in the Musical Times called Some Reflections on Modern Music Criticism. The same month Srebji uh, wrote off to him congratulating him on the article. Now the article was um, criticising the attitude of the then uh, establishment towards the then modern music, the contemporary music, um, and basically saying that they were too staid, they weren't moving with the times, their criteria were rigid and too fixed. Um, and Sarabji sensed a kindred spirit, a soulmate, if you like. Um, up to this point, he had had little opportunity to make friends outside his mother's circle. So uh, it sounds like he really spotted uh, someone he could get on with and make friends with and he did so you've described these letters as um the locus of Sarabji's coming out in sexual social and musical terms um could you sort of unpack that for us yes so there are three things there if we start off with the social 
I'm using this in the kind of old sense of coming out in society, you know, um, in, in this period of history, debutantes, um, young girls would come out, uh, it was so-called, so uh, in, in the London social scene and country house parties and so on, basically to meet um, uh, eligible bachelors. Um, so Sarabji, in this period, while he was writing to Heseltine, had his own kind of coming out into a kind of society. It was the, the musical life of London at the time and the artistic life. Um, so we see him emerging into public life and, and eventually joining in public discourse, uh, attending concerts and also um, opera. Uh, he was a big fan of the voice. He was also on the fringe of um, Heseltine's circle, which centred on the Café Royal. So um, there was a whole group of artists and writers and musicians who would go to the Café Royal, as you probably know. Um, in Heseltine's circle, there were people like Chevrolet Sitwell and William Walton. I mean, Sir was very much on the fringe of this because he wasn't um, that keen on uh, that kind of group social life. He was more into one-to-run uh, interaction, as far as I can tell. But, you know, he did become um, friends with other people through uh, Heseltine. Um, in musical terms, so... It's the time when Srabji first started writing music. Um, he's probably best known as a composer now, but um, he started off uh, with a more general interest in music, perhaps with a view to becoming a critic, which he also did become. Uh, so he wrote some songs based on French poetry, and he also wrote a piano concerto, which was dedicated to Heseltine. Now, in sexual terms, um, this, uh, to me, is undoubtedly the time when he... Uh, realized his own sexuality, his homosexuality, and came out to himself. Um, we also see uh, him coming out to Heseltine in a letter in 1922. He says, I should scarcely consult the art critics on the question of what sort of a, a wife I should take unto myself. Were I of the breed that takes wives unto themselves, the which prays to be God that I am not. So for me, that is um, uh, Sarabji's coming out statement to Heseltine, even though it must have been very apparent to Heseltine what his sexuality was by this period, not least because um, Sarabji had written an article, which we'll talk about later in a bit more depth, in the Medical Times in October 1921, entitled Sexual Inversion, um, one of the then favoured terms for homosexuality. Now that was signed KS, um, so it wasn't entirely a public coming out, which would have been very brave at this time, obviously. But um, I think by this time, Sarabji was sufficiently well known in public life that everyone would have known who knew him, but it was him. Yeah. Um, actually, it's interesting. So you mentioned that he wasn't really one for group gatherings and was much more of a one-on-one. -on -one. He seems to have been, yeah. Yeah, and that does uh, it does come through in the letters, as you say. It's a very intense... It's very personal and very intense, yeah. yes. <laughs> so, and, and you've described the reader as um, eavesdropping. Yes, I mean, it does feel a bit like that because it is so personal and, and so intense at times. Um, when I was first reading them in the British Library, there was a, a palpable sense of uh, presence there. I mean, it's fascinating reading old letters. They're a hundred years old, but they could almost have been yesterday, written yesterday. I mean, some of the terms of phrase are surprisingly modern. So um, that was very interesting. Um, I think it's also a sense that you, you see Sarabji's identity, and we would now call this an intersectional identity, being constructed, also almost being enacted before our eyes. Um, and this is a, a religious and a social thing 
and it's a constructing a racial identity as well as a sexual one. Um, and as as you mentioned, uh, the letters are quite personal. There's a very honest expression of his thoughts and feelings. For instance, um, there's a, um, a passage in one of the letters uh, relatively early on when he says to writes to Heseltine, I am very lonely. In a former incarnation, you must have been closely related to me, and the law of karma has ordained it that we should meet in this life. Laugh, if it pleases you, I don't mind. I have to endure as so much derision and insult that a little harmless laughter won't do me much hurt, will it? So, I mean, this emphasises the intensity and the, the personal nature of the epistolary relationship. Um, I think it also perhaps gives us an insight into what it was like for someone with that identity at that time um, because of the, the racial aspects, you have to do with a um, person of colour, a mixed race uh, person, and um, at a time and a place uh, which was not hospitable to such identities. Mm, and um, so he was, to clarify, he was Zoroastrian. Well, his mum, he was English, and his dad was a Parsi from Bombay. And uh, does he often discuss his racial identity and his... Uh, yes, quite a lot, actually. Um, I mean, it's interesting because we see him gradually refining his sense of identity. At times he says he's Indian, but then he rejects that as being too broad. Um, at times he says he's Oriental, but that, that definitely is too broad. And he, he comes to see that uh, later on. Um, so yes, you see him gradually refining a sense of self from the, the, the broad, uh, sort of Oriental, then refining it to Indian, and then actually you know, becoming more accurate and more detailed in just defining himself as a Parsi uh, and being received into the uh, Zoroastrian religion, which is when actually he assumed the name that by which he's best known now, Kaikosru Shapurji Sarabji. So Shapurji was his father's first name. Sarabji obviously was his um, father's surname. Kaikosru was uh, the name that he chose uh, when he entered the Zoroastrian faith. He originally was christened Leon Dudley. But yet he had this very intense relationship with his mother as well, didn't he? Uh... Yes. <laughs> you can say that again. Some of us can relate, I think. Ah, yes, yes. Um, uh, yes, he, he was uh, very attached to his mother. He lived with his mother until her death. So firstly in London through the First and Second World War. And um, yes, and then the rest of his life he lived with uh, a, a male companion. Um so I just to sort of change direction a bit, I really like this about the letters. Um, could you tell me about Sarabji's sort of salutation? Yes, I do mention them. Uh, so in the uh, book, I include a chart which uh, tracks the uh, the way that he styles himself. So I mentioned that he was uh, christened uh, Leon Dudley, and he first calls himself in his sign off. Dudley Sarabji or, or D uh, Sarabji Shapurji uh, and then it becomes uh, a C for Cyrus which becomes K um, and then that eventually becomes Kaikosru and, and actually he makes a point of thanking Heseltine for referring him to Kaikosru. Uh, he says in one of the letters um, no more Dudley please, uh, or Dudley K even, I abandoned D for Dudley to the outer darkness. So that, that is him literally rejecting his um, christened, given identity and 
embracing his assumed, you might almost say constructed identity. Um, I think it also illustrates the developing relationship between the two men, the fact that he is, you know, exploring these different selves um, and committing to a specific self through writing to someone else. Um, and Heseltine goes with this. He, he accepts um, Sir Abdi's account of himself in his various um, identity characteristics at, at face value. He, he very much is supportive in that regard. Yeah, so the way he begins the letters as well, it's um, it starts off very formal as dear sir that's sent courtesy of the musical times and it becomes um he becomes sweetest and best that's what he calls philip Heseltine, and then he calls him fee and my dear fee and très cher uh, he becomes more and more effusive uh sweetest and bestest fee um and then he you know he becomes the 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 devoted uh goes through the loving the adoring um and he also calls himself goat uh g-o-t-e which is a nickname that he acquires um he says that a friend uh, gives him that nickname he doesn't say who it is but um again that's something has sometimes very much into because he he loved pseudonyms uh, as you will uh, as is clear from the fact that he adopted peter warlock as his composer name uh, but he had loads of other pseudonyms as well um and is fee just like a sort of diminutive Philip? It is, yes. <laughs> yes. I think that's probably quite of its time, but it's it's yeah. quite sweet as well, and obviously intimate and highly affectionate. Um, so, uh, so you've mentioned that Heseltine was, as you say, took uh, Sir Abdi's sort of self-stylings at face value and really sort of um, affirmed him in that sort of sense. But um, yeah, uh, could you tell us a bit more about his uh, Heseltine's response and sort of how he corresponded? Obviously, we have to reconstruct this side of the relationship because we don't have Heseltine's letters back to Sarabji. So what we've done in the book is to scrutinise um, what he writes to other people around about the same time. So some key correspondents are Colin Taylor, who was um, Heseltine's piano and music teacher at Eton, where he went to school. Um, Olivia Smith, who was his girlfriend when he first started uh, corresponding with Sarabji. And Delius, who was um, very much a, a hero and a, an icon uh, for Heseltine. So it's very positive first. He's excited when he gets the letter forwarded from the Musical Times. He says to Olivia Smith that he got a delightful and an enthusiastic letter. Um, and then he writes to Delius in more detail. Um, and he's obviously fascinated by Sarabji's erudite musical knowledge and uh, advanced taste and recommendations of the latest modern music, which Heseltine uh, is totally into. Um, so he finds that very intellectually stimulating. It's very interesting that in early 1914, there's a, a big shift. Um, I mean, also, it's perhaps because he's writing to Colin Taylor, who he knows best. In a way, he's known Colin Taylor longest and he's perhaps more honest with him and he calls Sarabji a blackamoor and he says that he's appalling. Um, so some rather dated and uh, negative comments there. Um, he's very um, 
to and fro. He, he's, he's vacillating quite a lot because just a week after, um, he writes to Delius in a more formal register and he says, It's really great fun and I encourage him, Sirabji, to write more and more since I find his letters most entertaining and sometimes really interesting. So there's obviously a conflict with it, uh, within Heseltine himself at this period. He seems sort of vacillating between sort of um, being really flattered and, and actually having a great deal of respect. And, yeah. Yes, uh, th- that definitely, but uh, also slightly alarmed um, by the effusiveness uh, that Sarabji displays quite, quite soon, quite quickly. Um, you know, it's like Sarabji has, has, has got all this pent-up stuff he wants to get out, and it's personal as well as intellectual. So um, did the two ever meet? They did. He, first of all, met... Well, they met in March 1914, um, and that was at a concert, um, so it was through a shared interest. They um, also used to meet at the Bechstein Hall, which is now the Wigmore Hall, um, so at that time, as well as the concert venue, uh, then as perhaps now as well, you could hire bits of it out and, and try things out on the piano, and Sirabji took to doing that quite a lot and playing Heseltine, his latest compositions. Um, Yes, uh, there's also an interesting account uh, of, of Sarabdis in a letter after Heseltine died, actually. Um, so after Heseltine's death in 1930, Sarabji wrote, writes to a mutual friend, Arnold Dalbigan, and he says, um, so first he apologises for not having any of uh, Philip Hazeltine's letters. Um, he says, he actually wrote me a great number, and for at least a year or two more uh, before I met him in the flesh, we were in the habit of corresponding at enormous length, uh, and I can attest to this, uh, <laughs> from the Sarabji side at least, as far back as his Oxford days, round about 1912. It was 1913, but never mind. Um, so uh, the last paragraph of this letter says, and this is interesting, it is a source of no small pleasure and pride to me, that during a long period when he shut himself up and saw practically no one, I regularly visited him of a Sunday morning for many months on end. Now, I think this must refer to a period after the letters stop substantively, um, towards the end of Heseltine's life, perhaps during one of the bouts of depression that he suffered uh, increasingly uh, towards um, what, what turned out to be the end of his life. So it's almost like the tables have been turned. So firstly, Sarabji's really quite needy and, and shy uh, and, and desperate for friendship and possibly more. Um, but then later on, the tables have turned and um, has times in a bad way. He needs a friend and Sarabji is that person. So uh, you mentioned earlier, let's pick it up again. Um, Sarabji was published in the Medical Times. And in what sense was he engaged with gay liberation? Yes, this is a good question. So he published an article entitled Sexual Inversion, as mentioned earlier, which was one of the then favoured terms for homosexuality in the Medical Times in October 1921. Now, it's a fairly short article. And I mean, it's not totally original. It draws on the writings of Edward Carpenter and uh, the work of the sexologists Magnus Hirschfeld, the German writer, and Havelock Ellis, who um, was quite well known in, in England for promoting um, a different view of homosexuality to the, that then currently sort of criminal view. And Havelock Ellis uh, promoted uh, a more medical view, which is not um, necessarily ideal or correct, but um, it was for the time a step forward and Ellis was considered progressive. So um, in this article, um, Sarabji argues 
um, for homosexuality being an innate condition rather than a perversion as it would then have been styled uh, in, in general terms. Um, and he advocates therefore decriminalization of what he would think of as innate homosexuality and interestingly the lowering of the age of consent to 17. So in both respects this is remarkably progressive for its time. Um, neither of those things happened until much later in the 20th century yeah. as we know. And um, it's interesting hearing him go sort of quite hardline born this way if you will to use a uh, contemporary yes uh, that, that's his take on it I think we need to see this in the context of the time I mean born this way is can be problematic of course as we know but I think in the context of the time it was an argument uh, for certainly for decriminalization and actually he goes further than that he goes further than have a look airless in a way in that he doesn't see it as a problem even a medical one that's what I was just thinking because um earlier in that letter you quoted when he was saying sort of, I'm not the marrying type and I'm really glad I'm not. Um, yeah. He does seem to have this sort of sense of agency. There's no guilt. Um, yeah. There's no apology. This is one of the senses in which he he was actually very strong. Um, I mean, he, he comes across, particularly in later writings, as, as sometimes irascible, irascible, maybe a bit snarky, quite bitchy sometimes, uh, sometimes in a funny way, sometimes not. Um, I think... We need to bear in mind that he was a person with a you know specific identity and a set of identity characteristics, it, as I mentioned before, in a time and place which was not necessarily hospitable to any of them. So he had to fight just to be who he was. This is in sexual terms, this is in racial terms, and um, in religious terms as well. He's very anti the Church of England and, and the political establishment generally. He's very... Um, progressive and left-leaning at this period. In terms of this snarkiness then, um, would you describe Sarabji as camp? <laughs> <laughs> Great question, yes, uh, I love it. Um, so in terms of the letters, I think, yes, I mean there are things that we could identify as camp characteristics, um, and of course this is a bigger question as to what those are um, so we could we could look at something like Susan Sontag and her notes on camp. Um, so I think that there is some sense of uh, being over the top. Um, his expression is flamboyant uh, and quite um, excessive. Often it's you could say it was too much. Sometimes it was obviously too much for Heseltine um, at some point. Um, and, and some critics responded to his early compositions uh, in, in a similar way actually as I mentioned in the uh, Southampton paper. They, Harvey Grace in the Musical Times definitely feels that uh, he's almost fainting and swooning when he hears this uh, wild and extraordinarily complex music. Um, so there's also um, an anecdote about Sarabji himself. Now I should say that this is much later in life, um, so you need to take it with a pinch of salt, but um, there's a fascinating oral history uh, which uh, Sean Vaughan Owen did as a PhD at Southampton University in 2006. So he went to Corfe Castle where Sarabji lived in the second half of his life and uh, he interviewed the villagers, um, many of whom were elderly, so they knew Sarabji quite well, and he, he was obviously a bit of a local character and even a minor celebrity, reclusive though he was by that stage. So he interviewed to all, all sorts of people that looked after him and knew him and saw him in the street. Um, and there's um, 
this thing. So I mentioned that he lived with a companion, Reginald Best, who he described as his godbrother because uh, Reginald Best was his mother's godson. Um, I mean, it, it seems obvious that, that they were in some kind of relationship, whatever that was. Um, and, you know, people would mark, remark on his kind of camp mannerisms and how he'd say um, uh, when he saw Reg, Reg in the street or in the nursing home later on, he'd say, oh, hello, darling, you're looking so wonderful today um, and things like that. And uh, so Julius Squarey is quoted saying that the nurses in the nursing home in the 1980s were terribly shocked, but Mr. Saragi couldn't give two hoots. So I think that links to what we were saying earlier about his sense of agency and his sense of strength and his sense of having to fight for who he was and not giving a damn about what anyone thought. Um, so, I mean, the, 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 uh, there's a few recordings of Saragi's voice and it's one of those things where it's a bit like Michael Tippett, you know, you can't quite decide whether it's camp or whether it's just posh, or maybe a bit of both. Um, I also mentioned that there's a slight bitchiness, and um, you know, maybe maybe there's a camp element to that in in some of the uh, the passages in the letters. So, for instance. Um, he writes uh, when he's on a, a trip to Vienna, um, he's describing his impressions of the city uh, and he can't resist a bit of a dig at um, Arthur Bliss, who he calls Arthur Piss, um, and Lee Henry, who, who appear to have been in a, a relationship in, in Sarabji's uh, mind, at least. Um, and um, so he talks about that and he says... Um, Firstly, he describes how everyone in Vienna's um, obsessed by Mahler. It's, he calls it the Mahler orgy. And then he says, still Mahler is better than Arthur Piss. And I suppose one ought not to be astonished that the Viennese musicians have a Mahler to play with when ours have a pen... Uh, he means penis. Um, I mean a piss. Pardon. But still, no one has yet thought of renaming Lion's Corner House Piss House. They might, of course, very appropriately and proceed to enthrone 22 effigies of Arthur Bliss and Lee Henry, clasped in loving embrace. Righteousness and piss have kissed each other. Good grief. <laughs> so that gives you a flavour of, of the tone. Yeah, but alongside this defiance, as you say, really, yeah such a rich character yes well i mean they're very entertaining and and often amusing very very sharply satirical sometimes so let's um let's talk more about his music um which also as you say is very over the top in certain ways yes so his music um his early style is highly chromatic very complex especially rhythmically and textually he writes almost always for the piano um, and the piano writing is very virtuosic. Um, he also gets into extended durations. Um, so he first starts fairly modestly with short songs. The first piano sonata is 20 minutes long um, and the, the, the first piano concerto is, is three movements. Um, he writes lots of piano concertos at this time, mostly quite short, but then he he starts extending himself. So the second piano sonata is um, about 50 minutes and then the third piano sonata is nearly an hour and a half. So it's it's getting bigger and bigger. And this is something he explored more in the 20s and 30s and beyond. Re really huge uh, durations and dimensions. And we can possibly trace this as well as to the influence of Guizzoni and the, the maximalist ethos of the pre-war period. Um, yes, so I think the best thing to do is to listen to Srebrenica's music, and I mentioned that that is part of the project, to throw attention back onto that music, and a, a good places to start are with the first piano sonata, and with a piece like Le Jardin Parfumé from uh, 1923. 
unlike Heseltine's uh, initial reaction to some of the things that Stravagy says in his letters, which cause him to back off for a, a short while, but not for very long at all, really. This is him writing to Colin Taylor in 1916, and he says, Saravji, the Parsi born of an Anglo-Spaniard, has written a soul-shattering piano concerto in a style evolved from late Scriabin and Ravel with a dash of Stravinsky post-Petrushkin period, but not apishly imitative of any of them. He, Saravji, claims perfect mental auditory powers for all the complexity of his harmonic scheme. If it's true, he is a psychological phenomenon of the most astounding order. For a year ago, he had no thought or even desire of composing anything at all. Even the piano passages were evolved without any reference to an instrument. So this is something that really fascinates Hesseltine. Um, the fact that uh, Sir Abdi apparently has this almost automatic kind of compositional technique, and Hesseltine was very into the occult, so I think that's one of the things that attracted him to it. It was, it was almost like automatic writing. But also the, um, the idea of... Um, music as an imaginary object which is uh, this is a one of the things that we come across in in this research that is very um ahead of its time you know it's something that like like what nicholas cook was writing about in the 1990s and um heseltine wrote some articles exploring this subject with reference to Srabji in the 1920s one is called the mind's ear um, and he uses Srabji as a kind of case study for compositional process which is not something that was really talked about or discussed much at the time if at all certainly in print you know when Srabji tries to almost woo him through his letters you know talking about what he's wearing his dressing gown writing at midnight and making a point of telling him that, that it is midnight and he's in bed um that doesn't really work but when he plays his own music he's conquered him
it is painful that, on resuming my activities, I should have to start off with a sort of elegiac tribute to a great and honoured and deeply admired friend, Philip Heseltine, or otherwise Peter Warlock, with whose loss through a wretched accident, for no sane person acquainted with all the facts, as distinct from journalistic interventions, can regard it otherwise, at an age in his early prime of life, is gone from us. One of the finest musical minds of our time, a critic and writer further of unparalleled brilliance, insight and subtlety. What I owe personally to his early encouragement, sympathy and championship, I can never adequately express, except to say that here and now is my bounden moral duty to express that obligation as best I can. A songwriter of exquisite delicacy, jewel-like craftsmanship and flawless rightness of instinct, he has been equalled by few and surpassed by far fewer. And those happy recipients of quaint postcards inscribed in a freakish manner so typical of him in microscopic, dainty and delicate handwriting, typical of the perfect orderliness and complete lack of loose ends about any part of his personality, have a poignant reason for cherishing these memorials of him now. You have just heard Brian reading an article that Sarabji wrote for the New Age magazine in January 1931, following Philip Heseltine's sudden death. He was only 36. The musical extracts you have heard are Kaikosru Sarabji's Le Jardin Parfumé, played by Yonti Solomon in 1993, as well as his Piano Sonata No. 1, played by Marc-André Hamelin in 1990. Both were released by Altaris Records. Huge thanks go to Altaris for so generously allowing us to broadcast it, and also to Alistair Hinton at the Sarabji Archive for all of his help. Thank you so much. Kaikosru Sarabji's Letters to Philip Heseltine, edited by Brian Inglis and Barry Smith, is available from Routledge. Ask your library to get it in, please do, it's a fascinating read. Wherever you're listening, please leave us a comment and tell us what you thought of this episode. We want to hear if you loved it, we also want to hear if you hated it. Subscribe to Keep in the Loop, like LGBTQ Plus Music Study Group on Facebook, follow at LGBTQ Music SG on Twitter, or visit lgbtqmusicsg.wordpress.com. If you enjoy this podcast, Please spread the word. Tell your peers, colleagues, students, teachers, lovers, friends, enemies, etc. Just please tell everyone. I should say now that our inbox is always open to potential contributors. Do drop us a line if you'd like to get involved. Bent Notes is produced by the LGBTQ Plus Music Study Group. We're supported by the British Forum for Ethnomusicology, the Royal Musical Association, the Society for Musical Analysis, and the Society for Musicology in Ireland.